I want to sing that one again. I, I, uh, I have a word from the Lord for you this morning. In other words, we're going to read the Bible. Amen? If you want a word from the Lord, open up God's Word. Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 31. Good news for us is we don't have to brainstorm what a Spirit-led church looks like. God's preserved for us what a Spirit-led church is in His Word. Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 31. When he, that's Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have here in your word a clear picture of what a spirit-led church is, what they do, what they prioritize. And I am asking, we are asking in Jesus' name that our local church would be a spirit-led church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, of course, you may be seated. You know, every, every gathering that calls itself a church is uh, led by something. Sometimes it's a personality-led church, or sometimes it's a tradition-led church, or, or sometimes it's a, a, any number of things-led church. But in order to be a spirit-led church, we're going to be marked by what we see here in Acts chapter 9. And I just want you to know, in humility, I want you to know I really desire for our church to be a spirit-led church, a church that God joins. If, if not, we will not live for the kingdom priorities that God has given us here in the world. Colonial Pipeline, might have heard about this, right? Moves about 45% of the East Coast's fuel shut down on Friday, May the 7th, after hackers infiltrated servers and encrypted its data, demanding a fee to restore access. Anybody heard about this? The fear of a lack of gasoline led to long lines to fuel up. It's evidence, isn't it, that so much of our lives are tied to having gasoline that the fear of not having it was evident, wasn't it? I mean, it's clear. It's clear that we have demonstrated that we are a people who need gasoline. Without it, we can't travel to get to work. We've, we, we, we can't go and come as we please. And it's clear this week how much we value this commodity, isn't it? We can't function without it. Now, friends, what fuels the church of the living God? What leads to our coming and going and, and doing? What is it that if we don't have it, 
we can't function without it? The answer is the Spirit of the living God. A moment where gasoline was threatened, it was evident to us how valuable it is. But what fuels the local church is God working within us to mold us, shape us, change us, renew us, direct us, teach us to God that we would be as needy of his spirit as we are of gasoline. Amen. So when the Holy Spirit fuels the church, awesome things happen and they're displayed right here in Acts chapter Nine. Now, this was the seven marks of a spirit-led church. Gave them to you last week, but I just want to briefly remind you of what they are. And so that you can see we're bringing them right from the page of Scripture. The seven marks of a spirit-led church began, number one, with believing that God's grace can transform anybody. When he, Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. The disciples said, now wait a minute, why are you coming here? Because in their minds, the most unlikely convert to Christ was Saul. Up to this point, anytime Saul drew near to a local gathering of believers, it was for the purpose of persecuting them, arresting them, or harming them. So the disciples are like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Here's what's going on here. God has rescued Saul. It's transformed his life. Do you believe that God's grace can transform anybody? Because I'm here to tell you, human tradition can't transform anybody. Human personality can't transform anybody. But God's grace can. And the second thing we see, the second marker of a spirit-led church is what we'll call Barnabas-like initiative and encouragement. Again, Romans hasn't been written. The church at Ephesus hasn't been planted. Corinth, Paul's not visited. So much of what Paul will do has not yet been done. And that emphasizes the, the, the strategic importance of the moment that Barnabas, verse 27, takes Saul and brought him in. So we took those two verbs, took him, brought him to summarize with the phrase, Barnabas has caring initiative. He doesn't sit on the sidelines. Even though the apostle Peter, the apostle John, Mary the mother of Jesus, John Mark are members of the local church in Jerusalem, Barnabas's assumption isn't, well, they could do it if it needs doing. Barnabas sees what's going on And the reason that Barnabas loves his enemy is because he understood that he had been an enemy loved. Amen? And do you know that? That when you were an enemy of God, Christ offered you mercy and grace. So this local church does not have a me-first consumer mindset demanding that everybody around them meet their preferences, but rather this group of people are a group that has denied themselves, taken up the cross, and they're following Jesus. So having received the caring initiative of Christ, they offer caring initiative, not perfectly, as can be seen throughout the record of Scripture, but consistently. So Barnabas saw Saul left out and makes the effort to bring him in. The Spirit-led church will be known, as Jesus says, for our love for one another. Do you recognize that you're responsible for the people around you? You're responsible for the people in your local church. To love them, care about them, build them up. And, here's how it works, they're responsible for you. 
third marker is boldly proclaiming Jesus. It says that uh, how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So again, boldly doesn't mean loudly, doesn't mean he's screaming at people. Boldly, that word means clearly, consistently, faithfully. It's not, oh, I preached that, they didn't like it, so we'll change the message, right? No, all of our hope is in Jesus Christ. Friends, we believe he is the king, he is the savior, he is the redeemer. We are not ashamed of the gospel of God. We believe it is the power of God unto salvation. We believe there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we're not here just to get some pithy life principles. We're here to crucify the flesh, to live in the spirit, and proclaim the gospel to the nations. The fourth marker of a spirit-led church is we break down cultural divides for the sake of Jesus. As he's preaching, it says in verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. What's going on here? Well, that's a group of people with a different language, a different cultural background. Hey, we live in a sharply divided world. We live in a deeply selfish world. We live in a world where people of different backgrounds and languages are inherently suspicious of, critical of, demeaning of other people who do not have the same background, language, or ethnicity of them. And that doesn't fly in the church of the living God because we are called out of that world to join a kingdom that God is building made up of people from every language, tribe, and tongue. And then fifth marker is that being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. So as we live in this world, we anticipate, hope for, long for, pray for the renewal of all creation. That day is coming, praise God, but it's not yet here. So we want to be cautious and careful about misappropriating the promises of God for what will come and expect that they're going to be here right now. No, we live in a fallen world full of sin. So therefore, we do not expect to live lives of ease, comfort, predictable schedule, safety, or protection from harm. I mean, think of all the things that we have that they didn't. Buildings, budgets. But they did have the Spirit. And in fact, as we talked about last week, the gospel proclamation that goes forth, goes forth primarily as you read through the book of Acts on the basis of being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then sixth marker is that they bravely send out missionaries. So again, we're going to go against the sort of momentum of the way things often work and mark down that we believe that God has told us to make disciples of everyone somewhere, not someone, I'm sorry, not to make disciples of everyone in a particular place, but to make disciples of someone in every place. And we won't measure the health and vitality of our church on the basis of the number of people we can gather in one place at one time, but rather the number of people we send out to proclaim those who have no gospel, to those who have no gospel witness. They sent him off. I mean, if Saul was part of your church, wouldn't you want to keep him? Let's keep him here. The best teacher we've got. But they said, we're going to send him off. He's being persecuted for righteousness sake. And then Paul will say, I make it my aim to not build on any other man's foundation. And then the seventh marker of the spirit-led church. Again, at, at first glance, this seems contradictory. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. How can you walk in fear and comfort at the same time? Doesn't that seem to not make sense? But here's what I believe that is saying is 
Because they fear the Lord, they don't think that it's their job to tell God what he should do. It's not our responsibility to say, here's God, what we want to do, would you bless it? It is our responsibility and humility to say, what is it that you bless and we'll do that? And then you're comforted by the Holy Spirit saying, yes, you are walking in the way that you should and continue to follow his lead. Those are the seven marks of a spirit-led church. And now what we'll do is we'll take one of them at a time and emphasize over the coming weeks. And so the first marker of a spirit-led church is believing God's grace can transform any body. But there's an important thought behind that. Believing God's grace can transform anybody is on the basis of understanding that there is something deeply wrong with everybody. Think of the problems that you've encountered this past week. Maybe it had something to do with the gas shortage or something that at home just wasn't quite working. For a problem to be solved, certain things need to be done, right? Optimism isn't a plan. Just kind of hoping things get better. And I'm an optimist by nature. But, but optimism isn't a... In order for something to get fixed, somebody actually has to do the work, right? So what I wanna, the way that I want to approach this is let's really understand what the problem is that's a part of everybody so that we can understand how it actually gets fixed. Because if problems aren't solved, they don't get better. They just keep going. So let's start with number one point for this morning. Let's define the problem within us. Have you noticed that we really love origin stories? We love origin stories. Make big budget movies about origin stories of Darth Vader, of Gru. Captain America, right? These origin stories that go back in time to say, here's how we get here. So our origin story is recorded here in Genesis chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible, let's turn. Now, you're going to hold this spot there in Acts 9, and we'll look at some other scriptures, but we'll spend a little bit of time right now in Genesis 3. I believe you'll do well to be very familiar with Genesis 3. We're going to talk about our problem, and here's one of our biggest problems. You know what one of our biggest problems is? One of our biggest problems is we don't know what the real problem is. So we keep trying to address things that aren't the actual problem, and until we get to the core of the problem, can I put this as gently but clearly as I can? The problem is you. The problem is me. There's something in here that doesn't work the way that it was designed to work. For the last 16 years raising children, I've watched a lot of children's programming, can I just tell you? Spent a lot of time with Barney, Curious George, I think he's my favorite. And now with these girls, in particular, a lot of shows with horses in them, I'll just tell you. And, and they teach all sorts of lessons. They teach lessons about sharing, about being kind, about including other people. Never taught a lesson about being selfish or impatient, or complaining. Do you know why? Well, obviously, you'd say, well, they wouldn't teach that, but here's why they don't teach it. You don't need to teach a child to be selfish. Anybody ever teach you to get angry? No, why not? You came fully assembled that way, right? And this is going to tell you why. Genesis 3 will tell us why we are born that way. 
Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Boom! On the scene is an enemy of your soul defined here or described here as the serpent. And then we're told that he's more crafty, more subtle, more strategic, highly intelligent with a goal in mind. That's what we're getting at. So you have an enemy of your soul and that enemy has a strategy and a goal. Now, let's take sports as an example. If you like sports, you know a coach has an overall goal, right? To win the game. And in order to win the game, devises a strategy to bring about that goal. So I'll put a picture on the, on the screen. I think I've got one. Just to give by, by, by way of um, uh, illustration. We need to hear those again. So being persecuted and bravely sitting. I think I've got, do I have a picture? I don't have a picture. That's fine. We're, yeah, we're defining the problem. Well, here, here we go. The picture will come if the picture comes. But have you ever watched an NFL football game and you see the coach on the sideline and he covers up his mouth and he starts to call out a play? Why is he covering up his mouth? Because he knows a camera is on him and he doesn't want the opposition to read his lips, right? He's got this playbook and he's calling out the play so that his team can function and move the ball down the... F- now, I've read some stories where a coach often an assistant coach accidentally leaves the playbook behind, leaves it on a plane, Uh uh-oh, left it in the locker room. And then if the opposition gets a hold of the playbook, you'd understand that would be significant. Your enemy has a playbook, and guess what you have, friends? You've got it outlined very clearly. He's going to give you his strategy. I heard Colin Smith describe his strategy using three words, and so I thought it was so helpful to me. I'm going to pass it along to you. Here's the enemy's strategy. We'll just read it, and then we'll point out the strategy. Let's read the passage. He's more crafty. He comes up, and he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So here's the strategy. It begins with confusion. Confusion. Did God actually say? It's a calling into question. God's word. God's instructions. And, and really, if we've read through the whole Bible up to this point, Adam and Eve just have one prohibitive command, just one thing they're told not to do. Friends, all of your bad choices will begin this way, in confusion. Calling God's word into question. So once we begin to be confused about what God's really said, or to be confused about whether or not we really believe God is good, you're on the most precarious spiritual ground you can be on. Now, I think what's helpful 
is to know the enemy of your soul has a playbook, but it's just one playbook. It's just the same thing he tries with Jesus. Temptation in the wilderness. If you are the son of God, right? Confusion about who he really is. So again, simple application for you again and again. Just plead with you. You've got to know God's word well. You're not going to survive, sustain the days that are to come if you don't know his word well. Confusion, and then there's presumption. It's verse 4. Serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The first outright, bold lie the enemy says is in relation to judgment. Same playbook. Repeat the plays again and again. You live in a world right now that continues to persistently believe there is no looming judgment coming. Mock it, roll your eyes at it, but inevitably we all will stand before the Lord giving an account of our lives. But it's the presumption. Surely the consequences are exaggerated. Surely it's not that big of a deal. Surely a God who really loves you would not render judgment. Same playbook with Jesus. Goes from if you are the Son of God to since you are the Son of God, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. And if God really loves you, He'll send angels to protect you. It's presumption. And then third is ambition. Look at it carefully. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be in charge. You'll call the shots. You get to determine for yourself what is right, what is wrong, what the boundaries are. You should be ambitious to have that status. Same playbook, Jesus If you'll bow down and worship, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. That's the strategy. Do you recognize it, that it's in here in your life? Confusion, presumption, ambition. The strategy is unto a particular goal. So here's the goal. A people possessing the knowledge of evil while alienated from God with no way of getting back into God's presence. That was the goal. Can I tell you something? Mission accomplished. Check, check, check. Got it done. What was God protecting them from? All the commands of God are expressions of his steadfast love. All of them. This is exactly what God was protecting them from. Specifically, the knowledge of evil. Up to this point, paradise. Up to this point, this at last. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, right? Up to this point, 
abiding fellowship with God. He would come and walk with them. They would enjoy his presence. They would abide with him. And they knew nothing of evil. Now look at the temptation because it's truth mixed with lies as most effective temptations are. God knows, verse 5, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So they got something and then they didn't get something, right? What did they get? They got the knowledge of evil. What do they not get? They don't get the status of God. Now, having believed the lies, not obtaining the status of God's, they do have a knowledge of evil. And this is what it means to be lost, friends. To have a knowledge of evil. It's why no child is taught to be selfish, to be angry, to be impatient, to be self-centered. None of us were taught that. But all of us are that. Why? We inherited it from Adam and Eve. Genesis 5.1. Seth was born in the likeness of Adam. Adam made in the image of God. His children born in the likeness of Adam. You have that. I have that. Now, with a knowledge of evil, confused about who God really is, presumptuous about, you know, most everything in life, we have an ambition to build our own kingdom. It's alienated from God. They heard, verse 8, the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is why, this is why human beings can be captivated with so many things and completely uncaptivated by God. I mean, on some level, you have to admit this is pretty insane that we would love man-designed movies and technology and so on, but have no heart for the creator of the universe. We'd be captivated by ungodly things with no appetite for holy things. Why is that? Because we're spiritually dead. We're confused, presumptuous, and ambitious. This is the problem. So God does some things in response. When they heard the sound of the Lord God, the sound that once brought them joy, but now walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. This is after they, you know, tried to sow fig leaves and cover themselves. But the Lord God called. Who's doing the calling? Who's doing the searching? It's God. And said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. That's how we all are. It's not my responsibility. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. They can't answer the question, where are you? We can. Where are they? Lost. Knowledge of evil, alienated from God. And God's response here, look at verse 22. Lord God, behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden, placed a cherubim and a flaming sword, and turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Now, please hear me. That could have been it. In Close the book. Story is over. And God would have been just. But now here's where humanity is. They possess a knowledge of evil while alienated from God. 
and with no way of getting back into God's presence. That's what's taught here in verse 24. Cherubim representing the holiness of God and a flaming sword. You try to come back in, chop you down. So when I was born, back in 1979, I was born in my nature, confused about who God really is and confused about what my identity really is. I was born presumptuous, believing that I'm right, what I feel is right, what I want is right, and ambitious. And that's the history of humanity, friends, from this moment on. But though the problem be huge, God has intervened. So number two, understanding the solution God offers. Because while it is true, the enemy of your soul has a strategy and a goal, so does the creator of your soul. So the children of Adam, born in his likeness, in every human being since, born in the likeness of Adam, but one, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. We are alienated from God, have a knowledge of evil, we're stuck, and we can't do anything to change it, but God can. Amen? Not only can God, he has. So here's his strategy. Here's his sovereign plan. While the enemy's strategy was one of confusion, presumption, and ambition, the plan of God is, will begin with clarity. It's not confusing. It's clear. Jesus is the only one who can rescue and redeem. Jesus is very clear about his purpose and mission. He, he doesn't uh, misquote some things and try to hide some things. He says, I'm the light. Come and examine me. Come and question me. Come and, come and see for yourself. I have come into the world to save sinners. I've not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. It was promised back here in Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head you shall bruise his heel. So if you're Eve and you're sitting there listening, you just heard someone's coming, my offspring, and he's going to overcome the enemy. Now, I think there's pretty strong evidence to conclude that Eve thought that person was Cain. I've gotten a man with help from the Lord. That's how it's often translated as his name, Cain. But it's also a way of saying, here is my help from the Lord, this boy. But he's not, is he? He's not a rescuer. He's a killer. Take his own brother out. He's not here to redeem his brothers. He's here to destroy his brothers. And that's the pace and storyline of the rest of the Bible. Is that we need someone who's of us, but not from us. And that's Jesus. He comes in humility. While the enemy strategy was one of presumption, God's goal, God's plan rather, is humility. He came in the form of a servant and humbly went to the cross 
in our place. And they criticize him and say, he's a friend of sinners. Well, praise God Almighty, he's a friend of sinners. And while the enemy's strategy was one of ambition, the plan of God is to send Jesus as a servant who is a man of submission. So we often say here, the storyline of the Bible is where Adam was a man who sinfully sought the place of God. Jesus is God come as a man who graciously takes the place of sinful man at the cross in judgment. So here's the goal. A redeemed people restored to deep fellowship with God forever enjoying His presence through Christ. That's who we are, amen? That's what the local church is supposed to be, a gathering of people who have been redeemed by Christ. When the Apostle Paul explains it, here's how the Holy Spirit leads him. You're a new creation. No other word will suffice. You're not an improved version of your former self. You're new, a new creation. You know where you come from. You know why you're here. You know where you're going. Your life is not aimless or directionless or miserable. No matter the hardships that come, though we be cast down, we will not be destroyed. You have submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sins are forgiven. Your soul is restored. And all that was lost in the fall is redeemed. Are you enjoying the presence of God in the way that Christ has provided. No, I've never understood sour or harsh or angry Christians. Not what do you understand? We had no way back. And he made a way back. Well, third, and we'll do this pretty quickly. The conversion of Paul is an example of life transformed by grace. Turn with me to 1 Timothy. I think I read this passage last week. I just want to look at it with, with you for a moment. If you were given an opportunity to give your testimony about how God has transformed you by grace, what would you say? How would you present that? Well, in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul gives us his testimony. He says, here's who I was, here's what God did, and here's what my life is about right now. 1 Timothy chapter 1 Verse 12, I thank him. Oh, that's a good marker, by the way. If you've been restored to God by the grace of Christ, you are a thankful person. It's one of the defining traits of your life. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. If God's had mercy on you, he's done it out of the abundance of his love, but he's also done it for a purpose. You are in his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Can you see how those things are rooted in confusion, presumption, and ambition? I was a blasphemer. Why? Because he stood up boldly proclaiming things that weren't true of God. Friends, can we, can we take a moment? Some of the people most confused about who God really is have positions of religious authority. It's who the Pharisees are. And Paul was their champion. Constantly saying, here's who God is, but confused about who God really is. And I'll tell you what, the scripture is full of warnings that there are such things as false shepherds. So you just be cautious and careful when you listen to somebody who's teaching about God. What are they teaching? 
Who are they saying God is? Who are they saying you are? And who are they saying the, what the problem is and what the solution is? Here's the problem. You have a knowledge of evil and you're alienated from God. Here's the solution. There was no way back in for you, but God made a way through Christ Jesus who came as a humble servant whose ambition was to go to the cross and pay for your sins in your place. Just so we all know where we're coming from this morning. Amen. Man, if you believe that, it's so humbling. It's how Paul spends the rest of his life. Paul, Paul simply never gets over what God had done for him. You, you trace him chronologically through the scripture. He gets more thankful. In fact, 1 Timothy, we're towards the, towards the end of his life. I'm still thanking God. I was formerly a blasphemer. What are the things that you used to be that you no longer are because now you've been restored to fellowship with God through Christ? You have some used-to-be's in your life. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. Why was he a persecutor? Because of his presumption that everybody else was wrong and he was right. The world still operates this way, doesn't it? An ambition, an insolent opponent. I will wipe this church out. But notice God's response to him. But I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy For this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a testimony of somebody who's been redeemed, isn't it? Because when Eve held that fruit in her hand, what was she saying? To me be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Bid it, shared with Adam, everything's wrecked. I do have one other point that'll sort of lead us into communion. Back with me to Genesis 3. I've never quite thought of it this way until this week, how communion is sort of the opposite of the fall. Take and eat. Take and eat this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Jesus sits down at the table and says, no, 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 take this. Take my body, take my blood. This is how you are restored. But there's a pretty glorious picture of mercy right here in Genesis 3 at the time of the fall. I want to emphasize mercy because that's what Paul emphasized. But I received mercy. I didn't get what I deserve. When God curses, brings the curse in light of the fall, what happens? The Lord God, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. Verse 17, To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. 
cursed are you. But that's not what he says, is it? It's a curse deflected. And it doesn't fall on Adam. It falls, what does he say? Is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. It's a picture that the curse we deserve. Listen to me. It's not that the curse doesn't fall. He's holy. He's righteous. It's that the curse doesn't fall on me. Now, to take the full counsel of Scripture now, Abel's murdered, his blood goes to that cursed ground, and it cries out. And we keep going, and we keep going, the curse deflected. But the only way for the curse, not just to be deflected, but to, but to be propitiated, to use the theological term, to be satisfied is that curse falls on the man Christ Jesus at the cross. It's amazing grace that the one man, Christ Jesus, who was never confused, not presumptuous or ambitious for sinful gain, but was clear, was humble, and was submitted to the will of the Father, he took the curse in our place. That's what communion is about. That's what the church is about. That is the proclamation of the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to be a Spirit-led church, this is what we hold to. There is something wrong with everybody, and we've defined what it is. But God's grace can reach down and rescue anybody. Has he rescued you? Have you turned from a life of confusion, presumption, and sinful ambition to a life of humble submission to God, believing that that snake lied to you? And he is good, and he is gracious, and he is the king. Let's pray together. And then before we enter a time of communion, and at, well, well, better said, as we're entering the time of communion, I'm going to sing a song, kind of be a song maybe sung to you as, you as you listen about the mercy of God. And I want you to spend that time, as Paul says, I thank my God for what he's done. So you spend these moments reflecting upon the gospel in a way that leads you to gratitude. Father, I do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. The clarity of who he is, the humility of his person and work. And then when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, his greatest ambition was to submit to his Father. All of our hope is in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Praise the Lord.